Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, ladies and germs. This is Nicholas Kotar, author of epic fantasy inspired by Russian fairy tales, here with you today to talk books and culture and all kinds of other fun stuff. So grab your hot toddies, because that's what I'm drinking. Uh, I've been sick for two weeks. Hot toddies are an absolute necessity. Uh, So grab yours, or grab whatever else, and let's go. Let's get going. Now, whatever you might think about Game of Thrones, and I know some of you have very strong opinions for or against, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to argue the fact that uh, the coming eighth season, the final season, is going to be a really, really big deal when it comes to just general cultural import. People are going to be talking about it a lot. It's going to be popping up everywhere on your Facebook, on your news. It's going to be going nuts. Now, I'm not talking about Game of Thrones Day. <clears throat> but, as soon as it's over, you know that everybody is going to be thinking, oh, what's going to be the next Game of Thrones? And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, there is going to be coughing. Uh, and some of you might think, oh, it's the new uh, Amazon uh, Lord of the Rings series. Uh, but I think it's actually going to be something a little different. It's going to be the new new Amazon game of, uh, not game, sorry, Wheel of Time series, which is coming out uh, probably in about a year or so. Now, some of you are fans of the Wheel of Time. Some of you are not. Some of you have never heard of it. Some of you have gotten past book one. I'm one of those that has been taking my sweet time with it because it takes me a long time to get through these doorstoppers. This is book five. It took me about three months to finish book five. I got to about page, oh, I don't know, 200, and then I just, I was, I couldn't get, I couldn't force myself to move on. First of all, there's nothing about fires or heaven or anything like that, and I mean, I'm not kidding when I'm saying that most of the action was two young women getting mad at each other for the same reasons over and over and over and over again. That and some really low-level kind of stereotyping about men and women, like, oh, men, men are so this, that, and the other, and then the men acting exactly the same way, oh, women are so this and that and the other. And in book five of a series, you expect there to be a little bit more um, character development than just pulling your braid when you're annoyed, which is literally the one physical movement that one of the characters does, is pull her braid every time she's annoyed. She's gotten, in book five, to the point... Uh, her name's Nynaeve, by the way, those of you who are following along. She's gotten to the point where she stops herself from pulling the braid. But just mentioning the fact that she's pulling her braid is enough. <coughs> because we were, we were reminded of this supremely annoying thing that she does. Anyway, I forced myself to get through it. And I'm really glad I did. This is book five in a 13, 14 book series. I guess it depends on if, if you count the um, prequel that came out afterwards. Uh, and some, I think there might be some novellas in there as well uh, that were published after the death of the author. Um, but anyway, 
Uh, I finished it, and the ending is more than usually good. Now, there's one thing in particular I wanted to talk about that really struck me as I was reading this. Uh, spoiler alert, this is book five in a long series, so I'm not going to spare you. Uh, you just need to know certain things. Basically, uh, we get to the point where the main character, a young, a young boy named Rand Althor, who is really no longer um, a young boy because he's gone through a lot and uh, he's been growing in his power and he's sort of the, the fated chosen one that's going to save the world from the Dark Lord. And he's been uh, going through a lot of difficulties as he's beginning to conquer the world. His power is growing exponentially, but the problem is that uh, he may go crazy before he man he's able to save the world because this power, the one power uh, that both men and women can use, only the half of the power that the women can use is pure or is safe to use, although it still has, has its issues and you can still become sort of corrupted by its power, while the male half of the one power, called Sidene, uh, is tainted. It's tainted by association with the Dark One who has somehow, uh, I'm not sure if we've gotten to the reasons how or why, but he's somehow tainted the source of it so that anybody who uses it <coughs> uh, is eventually going to go crazy. So in this world, every male who can channel, who can use this power, is either uh, cut off from the source of power, which causes them to die because they have no purpose in life, or they're just outright killed. Except for Randolph, who's been able to escape uh, all the uh, attempts to end both his power and his life. And he's finally gotten to the point where he is able to stand up against some of the highest lieutenants, so to speak, of the Dark Lord, and face them head-on, and even uh, defeat them in direct combat. Now, what I found supremely interesting in this book, in this fifth book of the series, is that we're starting to get a very interesting development in the uh, in the character of Randolph Thor. Now, this the the world of these of these books is a world that is based on uh, a cyclical system of time, in which reincarnation it seems is the order of the day. Even though there is, unlike most uh, religious and cultural systems that embrace reincarnation, there is, uh, which are which don't generally have personal deities like uh, Buddhism and, and Hinduism, <coughs> um, this world has a seemingly personal single creator. So there, it's not a polytheistic system, it's a monotheistic system. There is a single god, but there, everything is strapped to the wheel of time. And the wheel of time... Uh, it uh, makes a pattern that is inexorable in the way that it is woven, or at least it seems to be. And this is what, what's so interesting. I'll get, get into this. And the pattern weaves in and out the same people throughout history. And history itself is, is cyclical. It goes in, in ages that tend to repeat themselves almost exactly uh, the way the ways that so basically it's not similarities in in circles but it's an exact circle so everything repeats itself including the people come back in after they've died now naturally there's all kinds of interesting uh, philosophical and theological things you can talk about uh, in this sort of a world but what I was fascinated is that in Randall Thor's case here he's starting to uh, remember uh, the memories of the very first, <coughs> apparently, the very first incarnation of his archetype or his person, whose name is Luz Theron Telemann. <coughs> now, Luz Theron uh, Telemann is the the figure who was supposed to come back and destroy the Dark Lord. But Rand fights off the incursion of the personality of this previous version of himself, 
apparently. And in the critical moment, the resurgence of Luz Therentelemon is actually dangerous to his ability to destroy the bad guy of the book, a, a forsaken named Robin. And it is really by beating down the incursion of his sort of buried, uh, buried memories from a past life that he's able, it's only because he's able to put them down and assert himself as Rand Althor, as this particular person in this particular iteration of the Wheel of Time, that he's able to defeat the big baddie. Now this I found immensely satisfying and immensely interesting. Why? Because in a system that is so cyclical that everything repeats itself, literally, so much so that you actually have reincarnated characters, it seems that there is absolutely no room for free will. And in fact, some of the most powerful good characters in the book, in particular some of the Aes Sedai, these are women uh, sorcerers, uh, insist on the fact that all, all you can really do is submit yourself to the pattern woven by the Wheel of Time. And they say, there's, there's this uh, speech, little speech that they say, um, the, the wheel weaves as the wheel wills. So it's interesting because it kind of suggests that the wheel itself is somehow a willing thing. Um, it's not. There's a creator that's probably spinning the wheel, but we're not even entirely sure what the relationship is between the wheel and the creator. But it is precisely by breaking the wheel, by asserting this specific personhood of a young boy who is a shepherd and who was formed by a very traditional, very beautiful, very nurturing community of women and men living idyllic pastoral lives, this Randall Thor, not the recurrence of the great powerful sorcerer named Luz Theron Telemann, who by the way ends up destroying the world um, and it's still suffering from the effects of his madness, it's by asserting his personhood in this small, small little life that is seemingly independent of the machinations of the wheel that he finds his, finds his real power. It's in that moment that he's able to beat the bad guy. I found that really amazing because it's almost as if, despite everything that, that his mentors are teaching him, Rand understands the reality that the only way he can ever defeat the, uh, the, the evil one, the Lord, the Dark Lord, is by destroying the entire system upon which this world is built to really break the wheel of time. Now, I don't know if this is where it's going to go in the end. Um, and I kind of hope it is. I kind of hope that, that at the end, this is exactly what he does, and he's going to actually break the cyclical nature of history. Because really, if you think about it, and if you consider it, cyclical visions of history are extremely depressing. The ancient Greeks, particularly um, in, their, in their late Hellenistic cultural manifestations, uh, the ones that fostered the now famous philosophies of Epicureanism and Stoicism, one of which Stoicism has, has uh, received an, an interesting resurgence in modern times because of figures like uh, Tim Ferriss and, and other uh, sort of self-help gurus, um, they didn't believe in the possibility of coming out of the cycle. And it wasn't, they really didn't have any hope that uh, history would somehow lead towards something progressively uh, better than what's happening now. And the best that they could hope is that the time allotted to them, the time that they are given, so to speak, that they could minimize the damage as much as possible. Ultimately, to look at that sort of, to look at history in that lens, 
you are fated without any free will to effectively repeat the mistakes of the past over and over again. And there really is no way of redeeming your own personal journey, your society, your race, your culture, anything, because it ultimately doesn't matter. The best you can do is to submit yourself as much as possible to what is happening because you can't control it anyway. Now, that's a profoundly pessimistic and profoundly depressing way of looking at the world. And really, if you think about it, it's the way that many people nowadays do end up looking at the world. And this way of looking at time, the cyclical nature of time, and its effect on identity is something really fascinating and something that we see in a very odd way nowadays. Now, I've talked a lot about postmodernism and how uh, people culturally speaking, not scientifically or not professionally, but <coughs> culturally speaking, tend to default to a kind of lazy postmodernism uh, when thinking about themselves and the world. Um, but any, in any case, what I'm talking about is this, is this lazy postmodernism that a lot of people unthinkingly fall back on. And it's particularly visible in something that was brought to my attention in an interesting interview I saw on uh, Tim Cook's um, uh, YouTube uh, page. Uh, Tim Cook is a, is a political pundit, uh, not, neither conservative nor liberal, but a, um, a kind of independent journalist who does his best to present... Uh, admittedly, some difficult political political facts in, in a pretty impartial way. I'm not a political guy myself very much. I don't like to get involved in politics, but um, I like the way he interprets things very often. And in particular, there was a fascinating interview he had with a doctor, a, um, a specialist in sexual neurobiology. So somebody who studies the brain, brain scans in particular, as it has to do with uh, sex and gender. <clears throat> now, she had, an, had a very interesting thing to say, and she pointed out something that I've noticed myself as well. And that's that a lot of people default when talking about identity to a kind of a faded position in some cases, but an entirely choice position in others, making their entire sort of philosophical, um, the philosophical foundation for their worldview kind of a category error. So on the one hand, many people assume and, and will, will admit or accept the fact, the scientific fact, that sexual identity, that is, whether you are, um, uh, whether you are a gay or straight, is determined by your biology. But those same people who are so uh, insistent on the science backing this up are also, more often than not, extremely uh, pro-choice, if you want to put it that way, when it comes to gender identity. And they resist as much as possible the biological basis for sex differences between men and women. And in fact, they uh, will go so far as to, and this, the, the doctor that was talking about this, her name is Dr. Deborah So, uh, she's a PhD. And she was mentioning that there are some fake scientific uh, studies out there that are attempting to change the science with, uh, without actually following scientific principles, only because of this necessity uh, in this faded kind of worldview where time is a cycle and there is no way, get, way of getting out of it. Uh, this insistence on simultaneously uh, sexual identity being ingrained biologically and yet gender identity being not. Now, this is a, it's a category error. It's a, it's a, uh, it doesn't make sense. Actually, logically and philosophically, the foundations for it are, com are completely unsteady. And yet this is how most people think. And it's particularly interesting in some of the more recent fantasy literature. In particular, I'm talking about the Fitz and the Fool trilogy uh, by Robin Hobb. This is a really interesting, 
a fascinating and beautiful series. There are, I think, nine books in the Fitz series and uh, even more books that are sort of offshoots of this series that go into different uh, geographical areas and follow different characters than specifically the Fitz and the Fool, who are two two of the best characters in modern fantasy, absolutely fantastic um, storylines. Fitz is a, is a bastard, a royal bastard who was trained... Um, I use that term technically, by the way. <laughs> uh, who's trained as an assassin because that's the only thing he can do in this uh, sort of vaguely medieval uh, feudal world. Um, so he's trained uh, by his family to be to be the sort of enforcer of the royal family, making sure to make sure everybody's safe. And he is sought out by somebody uh, who calls himself a white prophet, a a kind of Riddler figure who ha who is uh, androgynous whose sexuality is kind of amorphous, um, but who is uh, Fitz's greatest friend, uh, sort of beyond lover. Um, there's never any question about sexuality in terms of uh, when, when it comes to Fitz himself. He's a, he's a married man with a child. And yet this dynamic between them is embroiled in a larger story that involves cycles of history that repeat themselves without ever breaking out of it. And the cycles are filled with violence. They're filled with incredible oppression. They're filled with the worst manifestations of human nature that you can possibly imagine. And Fitz tries to break out of it as much as he can. He believes he is his own man and everything. he lives his life the way he thinks he should live it. And, and the fool, his friend, <coughs> is trying to convince him to sort of submit to the pattern, so to speak, just just as as um, Randall Thor's people are trying to tell him to submit to the pattern, and this sort of tension between them, their friendship and their conflict, which goes on for nine books, ends up uh, finishing with uh, a, a bloody reprisal, where Fitz um, goes goes on a sort of uh, on a revenge trip and kills everybody, an entire an entire basically an entire society that was involved in the enslavement of certain kinds of people, certain kinds of prophets, um, one of whom was his daughter. Now, the first book in this Fits in the Fool trilogy, which is the third of three trilogies in this very extended uh, series, um, is one of the best fantasy novels I've ever read, specifically because it focuses on the relationship between a father and his daughter in the wake of immense personal tragedy. Uh, the the mother of the child dies in childbirth, and he is devastated because she's the love of his life, and initially he's unable to, Fitz is unable to feel any uh, love towards his daughter because she was the one who took away uh, his the love of his life. But eventually, slowly, he comes to appreciate her, not merely as his daughter, but as, as a unique individual, who is very interesting and very special gifts. Um, in, <coughs> in some ways, Robin Hobb tends to write with a kind of um, on-the-nose way. She, she suggests things that are obvious to the reader and that should be obvious to the main char character and that aren't, which causes a, a kind of tension in the reader um, that, that, be, that makes for a very dramatic reading. And it also um, drives me crazy because I can just see... Uh, the main character is just being an idiot, and, and I just feel like shaking him by his neck and saying, come on, wake up, your daughter is is this prophet figure, and there are going to be people coming after her. And he doesn't get it, he doesn't see it, he doesn't see all the signs, and eventually she's abducted, and he and for the next two books he tries to find her, and when he does, there's the bloody reprisal. Now, at the end of it, 
as a as a kind of aftermath of the bloody reprisal, he begins to die. He is. Um, it's, it's a very interesting um, comment on the nature of violence, in that he is able to save his child, but in the very last moment of running away, even though he's mirac almost miraculously saved from death, he is still subject to um, a disease, a kind of debilitating disease that is the most um, the most awful manifestation of this race that he has just destroyed. They have a way of of uh, sort of um, inserting like maggot eggs inside you and so you begin to sort of decompose from within. It's really awful. So he begins to die in this way and he goes to this place, a kind of graveyard of, of his family where um, some of the previous kings have found the, the magic and the power to infuse themselves or their essences or their lives into statues of stone that doesn't break, that doesn't, uh, doesn't break down. <coughs> he's he has this compulsion to go and make his own statue into which he can then pour his life force because evidently because it's a cyclical system of history and time goes in circles there is no afterlife so there is no way that your essence can go on after you die and interestingly it uh, it doesn't seem that that there is reincarnation in this particular um uh, fantasy world so it seems that there's an archetype of you that exists, but if it comes back, it comes back not as you, but as a different version of that archetype. So you are a version of the archetype, but you yourself will never come back. So it's the ultimate depressing view of the world, where there's no way of attaining any sort of immortality, except through this strange infusion of your power that is that is uh, only available to the king, so of a special kind of magic called the skill. And so in this stone that is sort of uh, not really alive, has embers of life within it that you can sort of sense magically and the stone doesn't ever die so you can forever exist as a kind of statue <coughs> he makes a statue and at the very end he pours himself into the statue but he also pours into the statue the essence of the fool and another um, character in the books that he's been tied to a wolf with whom he's been magically tied as well through a different kind of magic um, uh, called the the wit, the wit, W-I-T. And this ending, so at, at the end, he has no reconciliation with his daughter whom he has just saved. He has no moment of enduring love that he can rely on. Uh, no moment of sort of love that will stretch out through eternity as, as we see in, in a movie like um, uh, like uh, Interstellar. He spurns everyone except the fool and this uh, wolf who's been dead for generations, uh, not generations, for about 20 years. And it's those two that have been his sort of foils throughout the series that he then absorbs into the stone. And this, the author intends to be a happy ending. I found it to be one of the most maddening and depressing endings of any book ever. Because the fool, it's, as, it's, as, as it's made uh, abundantly clear, is really not his friend. He is his foil. And although they have a very complex relationship that is loving, it is not a healthy relationship. It is a relationship of possession, a relationship of power, a relationship of obsession. It's a, it's a very damaging 
in some ways, evil relationship. And the relationship between between him and the wolf is just, it's not much of anything. It's just, it's just a kind of mental communication. So for the author to choose within the cyclical time system, for Fitz to choose as his final identity, a kind of meshing, an amalgam of three essences, himself, his foil, with whom he's been battling his whole life, love-hate, and a wolf, and to willingly set aside his daughter, with whom he's had, she's the only person left alive who has had any sort of real, real, real human loving relationship with him, for him to spurn that at the very last minute. And for us as readers to expect this to be some sort of a kind of glorious, triumphant end is a really interesting manifestation of the way people look at time nowadays. Nowadays, most people don't consider time to be anything but a constricting reality that affects your identity completely. You are restricted by who you are within this small period of time that you are given to live. That's how most people look at it. Interestingly, this is really not the way that the Christians look at time. Christians look at time not as a circle that, that is fated to repeat itself. Christians look at time as a helix. So there's a lot of repetition throughout history. There's a lot of uh, resonance in events and among people. History repeats itself. We all know this. But the Christian worldview looks at it as a constant progression going in a circular pattern, but never repeating the same mistakes again. Not really. Ultimately moving eternally towards the point of its um, arrival. And that point of arrival, God is infinite in himself. So that journey within time, that helical journey is eternal. And it is infinitely hopeful. It is not progressive. Otherwise, it would be a straight line, right? So Christians actually don't look at history as a, as a progression. We don't, we don't really believe that paradise is possible on earth. We don't believe in human utopias. That's why most of us uh, are so skeptical of liberal um, uh, ideologies that tend to try to manifest paradise on earth. No, we recognize the fact that there are going to be movements up and movements down throughout history, positive and negative manifestations of human nature. But ultimately, if we continue personally within our allotted time to do what we must, to do what we can to make the world a better place, ultimately we are actually moving history along in the positive direction, not in a straight line, but in a helix that is forever uh, rotating around a central moment in time, which is the incarnation of Christ, and moving towards a final point, which is eternity after the end of the world. This is the Christian worldview. It's one that is actually immensely hopeful. It's one that uh, is embraced by Tolkien. And if you read his uh, Lord of the Rings, even though the, at the end it's a it's a quite a bittersweet ending, the reason for that is actually because within the paradigm of Arda, within the paradigm of the history of, of the Lord of the Rings, they haven't entered into those space where time can begin to rotate around that central event because it's a pre-incarnational paradigm. Eru Iluvatar has not come to Earth, has not come to Arda, and has not redeemed it. It is a world that is essentially fallen. It is essentially moving towards a dying moment. It is essentially a Ragnarok kind of ending, unless Eru Iluvatar is going to come in and illuminate it or redeem it in some way, which is actually, if you read the history of Middle-earth, the 10-volume um, the ten volume compilation that Christopher Tolkien, his son, 
collected over the course of his life, there is is a suggestion in a, in a conversation between a human woman and an elf. I forgot the name of the conversation. You can find it in, I think, Morgoth's Ring, I think, Volume 10, <coughs> uh, if I'm not mistaken. There is a suggestion that Tolkien eventually wanted or was or was interested in exploring the possibility of the incarnation of Eru Iluvatar within the world of Arda as a hobbit, uh, which is a fascinating idea. Um, and ultimately, it shows how... Uh, ultimately, what I'm, what I'm really interested in talking about today and, and bringing it to your attention is how the worldview of the author, specifically with reference to time and its effect on, on identity, can really... Uh, play a great role in how hopeful the ultimate message of the novel is, or the ultimate worldview of the novel is. And let's be honest, we read these novels so that they illuminate some aspect of our own being, at least the really good ones. It's not just escapism. It's a way of looking at the world through fresh eyes, uh, looking at, at the reality of our mundane existence in ways that we haven't expected, uh, in ways that we hadn't expected, in ways that, that surprise us. Certainly that's what Tolkien um, intends fantasy to be, and many, many fantasy authors continue to at least try to do that, even though some are more uh, effective at it than others. Um, in my own uh, forthcoming book four in my uh, series <coughs> titled The Forge of the Covenant, I specifically talk, I specifically address this issue of circular time and its effect on identity by making a realm within the world that is accidentally and temporarily outside of time. And so if you've read my first three books, you'll know that, that a lot of people have done a lot of stupid things. And the end of book three is a supremely dark and depressing moment that I think actually got some people so upset that they're, they might not even continue the series. But basically everything that you thought was true is, is turned on its head, going all the way up. Oh, I'm not going to say anymore. But my idea in book four and book five is that there's going to be a, a, general, a slow, move, slow move back upwards in, into the realm of hope. And the first way to do that is to fix some of the issues that are in, within time. And the time of the world that I've created within my novels is also pre-incarnational in the sense, which means that it is circular, that it is faded, that it has very little room for free will. But here, suddenly, accidentally, or maybe not so accidentally, there's an opportunity for some of the key players to overcome their own weaknesses, to transcend their own... Um, to transcend their own failings and to fix things that are then going to rewrite themselves within the actual fabric of time at the end of the book. Uh, it's a very difficult book to write. It's been, um, it, although it's a, it's technically a novella, it's not <laughs> even full novel length. It's been taking me a very long time to edit uh, and to rewrite because, um, as you know, with, with time travel and with any sort of time loop sort of things, there's a lot of problems that can arise from a single plot hole. And I, I discovered a plot hole in chapter four about a week ago or two weeks ago that put everything in doubt. So I had, I've been having to go in there and jiggle things back and forth and make sure that it's all consistent because the ending has to be the kind of thing that then firmly places all of the characters within a new timeline that then, uh, that then rewrites history in a way that makes it possible for things to end up well, which those of you who have read book three uh, we'll be happy to hear, I'm sure. Anyway, I've been blabbing on for too long. My voice is almost gone. Uh, sinus infections galore, all this sort of lovely nastiness. I've been uh, bedridden for <coughs> almost two weeks, but today I felt a lot better, so I wanted to come out and share my thoughts about The Fires of Heaven by Robert Jordan, book five of the Wheel of Time series, about the fits and the fool 
trilogy, the, thir- the third trilogy of three trilogies in the Fits in the Fool series by Robin Hobb and, of course, The Lord of the Rings and my own book four, which is going to come out probably mid to late March. Uh, those of you who are interested in finding out more, just go to my website and sign up for my readers group. I send all of my um, subscribers uh, advance notice of all my books, and sometimes I even give them free copies. So there's your little incentive for the day. Uh, if you haven't read my books, they're all available on pretty much any um, uh, book uh, retailer you want. And book one is available as an audiobook. book two coming hopefully very soon. I'm waiting on the sound producer for that. In any case, have a good night, everybody. Um, uh, and uh, this video will be up on my author page very soon. And I'll post a little bit of a, <laughs> a little bit of a uh, text addendum for it on my website on Friday. But uh, if there aren't any questions or comments, and I don't think I see any right now, I'm going to say good night to you all. Thanks for those of you who uh, came by. Um, and I'll see you all sometime in the future. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.